Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is the premiere episode of our fourth season, season four, episode one, and today we are going to be talking about The Untouchables from 1987. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matty, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about you? Good. Excited to kick off a new season. I'm never really sure, like, I guess Disney Plus was an exception, but I don't really have a good grasp of what movies are on each service until we start looking at them. And uh, we'll get into it, but I think Hulu is going to be a little bit different than any of our previous any of our previous streaming services. Yeah, it's a, it was a, a lot different when we look through to see what films we wanted for our slate and things like that. And I was not a Hulu owner before. This is my first experience with Hulu. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into the streaming service, but I got to say, I've been a bit frustrated with Hulu as a streaming service altogether. So, but that's okay. We can get into the, the movie itself, which, you know, is its own thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and we do, I mean, we sort of made a snap decision to do... The Untouchables, when we recorded Mission Impossible and we were doing a lot to get this episode, to get that episode together because it was our first guests that we had had on to the show and we didn't do our full due diligence and it is only available for the add-on for Hulu. So we do we do apologize for that. I believe we're going to endeavor to keep the, the rest of the seven of these episodes from normal Hulu, but I mean, as I'm sure listeners have noticed, movies come and go from the streaming services all the time, so we're doing the best that we can, and really, really trying to make sure people don't have to buy extra <laughs> movies to keep up or subscribe to extra streaming services. That's our goal. We're, we're trying our best. Yeah, and well, the other goal, I think, in my mind for limiting to our, ourselves to the streaming services is it gives us kind of an organizing principle uh, of what movies to choose. There's just so many that it's hard to go through and pick things. So when we have a certain service that we're looking at, it allows us to pick from a much smaller pool and it makes a lot more interesting choices, in my opinion, of the things that we end up picking to cover. Yeah, I think it's really helped to diversify our lineup. So from in terms of time period and genre exactly. as well. All right, so let's get into the the movie here. This this was my first time watching this movie. The I didn't think I knew anything about it going in, but once the movie started, I realized that I was pretty sure that I knew what the last line of the movie was because the in high school I had done a production of the Water Engine by David Mamet, and I believe my acting teacher had, I, I can't quite remember, the director of that production and also my acting teacher in high school, who, if all has gone well up to this point, uh, the audience will have heard on a bonus episode of Stream It, she had remarked that she really liked the final line of this movie, and, you know, this was almost two decades ago now, but 
just that story really stuck with me. And as the movie was going along, I was like, I am pretty sure this is from this movie. Mm-hmm. So we we won't talk about the line specifically here. It didn't ruin anything from the movie for me to know that it was coming. But yeah, that was that was all I really knew about this. And I think I knew that it was a uh, a mob movie, but I did not know that it was uh, Al Capone. Right. Yeah. It's a for me. My personal history is I'd seen it once before. Uh, I think. Oh, you'd seen. Yes, I had seen it once before. I think in two thousand six, uh, either two thousand five or two thousand six. So it's been a long time. But yeah, I had seen this one before, and I enjoyed it when I saw it before, but. Uh, I didn't remember the movie that well. There are a few scenes that really stuck out to me. Like, you know, the one we're going to cover that happens at the train station that's iconic. And, but it's, it had been so long since I saw it that I only had a vague memory of how it sat with me. And, um, like, my perspective on films and also on the topics this film deals with have changed a lot since 2005, 2006. So it was a really interesting experience for me to watch it this time to because of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. I'm excited to get into that as as we get further along here. But for now, let's talk a little bit about 1987. This is our second movie that we're covering that was released in the year that I was born. And this movie came out on June 2nd, 1987. And... You you had pulled a couple things that are from around this time period that that you had wanted to talk about. So what do you what do you have? Yeah, so I tried to pull some things that tie in particularly to this movie since we had covered this year before. But in right before 1987, and something that really impacts the rest of this year, Reagan, the president at the time period, had signed the Anti Drug Abuse Act. And this was in the middle of, like, the Just So Say No era, and it's um, kind of at the, right in the middle of the war on drugs and the big pushes on those things. And this Anti-Drug Abuse Act did things like create mandatory drug minimums, uh, and then it also established stiffer penalties for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. And this act is seen as a particularly racist act, and that it was in many ways designed to target not white people, people particularly poor people, but also not white people as well. And this film, as it deals with prohibition, I really think that Brian De Palma was making direct commentary on the war on drugs since it was a big part of what was going on at the time period. So I think... Th- there's deliberate connections in this film. Yeah, that I, I agree with that. And even if it wasn't something that was on De Palma's mind, or at least I, it probably wasn't based on when they started production, which was a little earlier than this. Right. It may not have been why he chose the project, but it's hard to imagine it didn't influence or at least wasn't on their minds when they were in production. Especially since it was the culmination of a bunch of other things in the war of drugs that they were doing. So, yeah. Sure, of course, yeah. Oh, yeah, one of the things that I pulled, because this movie is about a an amendment that was an amendment to the Constitution that was made and then 
there were a lot of unintended consequences from that and it didn't really pan out the way everyone thought it would. I I pulled a couple of things just from the legal history of this country and in June 19th, so just uh, a, a couple of weeks after this movie was released was the Supreme Court ruling on Edwards versus Aguilar and they ruled that there was there had been a Louisiana law that was passed that required whenever evolution was taught in schools that you also had to teach creationism to be equal to show that <laughs> uh, equal footing to science and religion to both sides. And the Supreme Court struck that down as un- unconstitutional. Yeah, it's it doesn't surprise me that this is the time period it came from, but it's also within my lifetime. And uh, it just... Uh, it's so, so frustrating that this is the a thing that was going on at the time period and that we see so much of this still impacting us today of uh, fights over these kinds of things and what people are uh, able to teach in school uh, and the creationism versus evolution thing is still a thing that often gets debated in the school setting especially in red states here in the united states but seeing the recency that you could actually teach evolution, you know, actual scientific history without having your hands uh, tied behind your back is a strange, an unsettling thing to see. Yeah, this kind of, sur- or I don't know that it surprised me per se, but if you had asked me to guess the decade that this had happened, I I knew that at some point this had been a legal fight and that it had been eventually ruled unconstitutional. But if you had asked me to guess the decade of this, I probably would have an equal chance of guessing 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s. So I didn't really have any any good sense for when this actually happened. And we, we should also tell people, because we've mentioned it on the show before, but just in case this is someone's first episode or just in case they haven't <laughs> listened to our entire back catalog, you are a teacher. You teach public high school in a red state. Uh, or no, my state's pretty blue, actually, a, right now. In a bl- yeah, in a blue it state. It is a swing state, though, so it is pretty blue at the moment, mm-hmm. but that it, that could change. And it has sort of changed at different times. But uh, right now, it's it's fairly solidly blue. So, but being a teacher, Sorry, I, I pushed your state red. Uh, that's okay. You know, I'm worried about it going red here in the fall. But that's a different topic. Um, it's it's really difficult, especially right now, the time that we're releasing this episode, with the way that uh, it, all of this is involved with schools. So seeing this for me really puts me into the mind of the kinds of fights that were happening and the kinds of fights that are happening now and my thoughts on on this film and the kinds of difficulty that it has navigating a lot of different political ideals uh and so emblematic of all those things yeah yeah, yeah. uh what else do you have from 1987 so this is a really big one for this film which is that in on january 13th there's this huge case 
where seven of the top New York City mafia bosses were sentenced to 100 years each in prison. It's known as the Mafia Commission Jeez. Trial. Yeah, it was a really, really big one. They got they got sold out. I didn't read through all the details of this, but they did get sold out, and then they went to go prosecute them. And the prosecutor in this in this case was none other than Rudy Giuliani. Old Rudes, what up, Rudy dude? Giuliani? It's so like this is basically where he got his, the start of his career was on this trial um, as the the prosecutor. And one of the things that was interesting is that they there were comparisons between Rudy Giuliani and G- Elliot Ness in that year. Like if you look at the the history of the New York or not the New York the the National Police newspapers, which I. <laughs> I, I happened to go peruse like, oh, 20 issues of these, something like that. So 20 weeks worth of uh, national police newspapers. And just to get an idea of what policing was like and what they were thinking of. And so there were a lot of comparisons of Rudy Giuliani directly to Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. So I think people would have been thinking of that at the time period. There was a hit put out on Rudy Giuliani at the time period. It's a little bit more complicated than that. There, the mafia families voted on whether or not to put a hit on it. And John Gotti, who was like the head of the mafia at the time period, wanted to take Rudy Giuliani out. But the the oh, he ended up getting voted down. But there's still <laughs> some suspicion that there was like a bounty on Rudy Giuliani's head while this was going on. And it would have been just all over the national headlines of basically every newspaper for months at a time, uh, the goings on with this trial, and then the arrest of John Gotti later on in the year. So there's no way that you would go into this film without thinking about the mafia and the connection with these these uh, mobsters that were arrested during this year. Yeah. Cool. I I would not have found that. So I'm I'm glad you found that one. Yeah, it was really cool. The the other thing that I pulled from this year and it's just a funny little one, but on October 23rd, uh Ronald Reagan's Supreme Court justice nominee Robert Bork Borked up his nomination, and Borked became a word. Yeah, Borked became a word. Bork, one of the, you know, worst people nominated for the Supreme Court, so it wasn't... It was surprising that he didn't get through, because he was the first nominee that that did not get confirmed, but... There was a lot of a lot of stuff that went on with this, including uh, things involving the Saturday Night Massacre involving Nixon and all of those things. So, well, I believe so. There's a few factors. Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think part of what went into him being the first to fail to get confirmed was because everyone else who was going to fail to get confirmed, they didn't vote on. Which is like their nomination was withdrawn once it became clear that the president wasn't going to get get his way. Like rather than go through the indignity of having your Supreme Court nominee get get, get borked, and I, that's part of why it was so infamous was because tried to slam it through anyway. Yes, exactly. Um, I I believe that's exactly right. 
And it was a close thing that he didn't he didn't make it. I, I don't know what the vote ended up being, yeah, was, but the it was forty eight to fifty two. Right. So, but the fight over it was pretty pretty dramatic for a long period of time and involved uh, things like Gregory Peck putting together commercials to talk about how extreme he was, and I don't know. So that involves all movie history and things like that. So I don't know. It's a a weird yeah. experience. He's one of only four Supreme Court nominees to have been opposed by the ACLU. The other three being William Rehnquist, Samuel Alito, and Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, additionally, one of the funny things about Robert Bork is one of the reasons why he didn't get nominated is because his video rental history was leaked to the press. So that ties in with our with Stream It. Imagine if your you know your Netflix history got leaked to the press, and that was what got used to take down. Uh, your nomination, or in this case, your Hulu history. Yeah, and the, uh, this actually just came up. I don't know if you watch Last Week Tonight. I do, yes. But you do. So did you see John Oliver's piece I on did, this? I did, yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll post that in the in the show notes. But he basically makes a point that this became an issue and all of a sudden privacy, a privacy law for your rental history became <laughs> enacted rather quickly. Yeah. But but not for your your Hulu history. That um no. you know that your footprint on the internet can be uh used against you. So who knows? Not yet. And that that yeah, that's exactly the context that he's bringing right. it up in in that <laughs> we could pl- pass laws to make our data more more our own. So and just be careful. Be careful, everybody, as you watch uh, the Untouchables this week. As you apply for the or you try to become on the Supreme Court, you might, you know, run into run into some questions about your Supreme Court nomination based on this movie. I guess. Yeah, and then the only other thing that I wanted to talk about history-wise, just because I think it's like so interesting to think about and somewhat disheartening, is. So this was the the constitutional amendment that we're talking about here, the 18th Amendment that prohibited the manufacturing and sale of alcohol was passed in 1919. And then the 21st Amendment, which repealed that, was in 1933. And... Passing a constitutional amendment is extremely hard. You need a lot of votes. And it's something that really just seems absolutely unfathomable today. Like, I just cannot imagine. I think it's 75% of the Senate needs to vote on it. Right. And I cannot imagine anything reaching that sort of consensus now. And as a matter of fact, it's been... 1992 was the last amendment to the Constitution. And in some ways, I think you can argue that... On on the one hand, I think you can make an argument that it makes sense for there to be less amendments to the Constitution as time passes, because the more time you live with something and the more amendments you make, the closer you get to it being perfect. But... The flip side of that argument is we're continuing to learn more and particularly people who have lived with a lot of privilege or um, 
are starting to, we're starting to learn and see more about some of the inequities in this country. And there, I think there's still could be some work done on the Constitution. For sure. Yeah. A lot of work done, to be honest. I, I think there needs to be a lot more amendments. But that, again, separate topic. Yeah. <laughs> Come listen to our politics <laughs> podcast. Okay. Do you have anything else to say about this year, about the time period? That's here? all I've got for 1987. All right. Let's talk about the people who made this movie. But first, we'll talk about the budget here. So the the budget for this movie was $25 million and... The box office was 106.2 million, so <laughs> pretty pretty decent return there, quadrupling your investment. Yeah, a great uh, a great bo- box office success at the time period. And for Brian De Palma, this was his first. He had box office successes before in some small like horror films and things like that, like Carrie, things w- that were kind of cult classics. Uh, but this was his first one that was actually like a big blockbuster that had a big blockbuster kind of return. Yeah, and I don't think we ran down the highest grossing films of 1987 when we did The Princess Bride because it does not appear on the list. So I thought we could run them down quickly for for this one because The Untouchables does make the list at number six. And the other movies on this list, so we have Three Men and a Baby at number one. Number two, we have Fatal Attraction. Number three, we have a sequel, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Number four, we have Good Morning Vietnam. Number five, Moonstruck. And then number six, The Untouchables, as we said. Number seven, The Secret of My Success. Number eight, Stakeout. Number nine, Lethal Weapon. And number ten, Witches of Eastwick. There you go. I've seen six of these, including Three Men and Baby, which is wild that it was the top grossing movie of the year because that movie is not very good and it doesn't fit anything that you would imagine for a box office. It's like a weird, I don't know, a weird family-friendly comedy. I don't know. It's it's strange. Oh, funny. Yeah, I... Uh... Yeah, in keeping with tradition with this podcast, I had seen none of them until we watched The Untouchables. So now I've seen one. There you go. Well done. But I did recently watch Beverly Hills Cop 1. So I am I am set up to watch the the other nine here. Yeah, so. there's I, there's some some that are worth on here. Good Good Morning Vietnam has Robert, Robin Williams in it. And I enjoy that one a lot. Mm-hmm. And then Lethal Weapon is a classic, although it does have Mel Gibson. Um, and he's... Mel Gibson, he's a jerk. So, cosine. Who who did you pull to talk about for this? So one? we talked a little bit last week on Mission Impossible about Brian De Palma, but we didn't really get into. There was a lot going on with a lot of hosts, so I wanted to bring him back up and talk about him a little bit. And Brian De Palma is such a fascinating and uh, pivotal director from the time period. And I will recommend again. There's a documentary film about Brian De Palma called. De Palma, uh, where he just talks into the camera for uh, about two and a half hours about his films, and then it shows clips of his films as he talks into the camera, and that's the whole film. But it's quite good, actually. Like, it's really good, and he gets so much insight into his films and into the process of movie making. So for film buffs, it's a great film to watch. You, you learn a lot about 
the history of film and the process of film and the career of a director from watching this one. Uh, and he spent some time talking about this film in particular. He was known for some sort of B-horror movies before before this time period, and he's known especially for, in these B-horror movies, for incredible amounts of graphic violence. He did the film Sisters, he did the film Carrie. I don't know if you've seen Carrie, it's based on the uh, the Stephen King book. You know, I think I said last week that I hadn't seen any De Palma movies, but yeah, that that's a lie, because I have seen Carrie, because I am a very big Stephen King fan. Yeah, It's been a long time since I saw it, though. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I'm very familiar with it, just because it's one of those things that's kind of iconic in culture, and, you know, there's a scene where she's covered drenched head to toe in blood, uh, and there's pig's, yeah, pig's blood. blood. So that's a lot of this, and then uh, he also did the film Scarface, which it's interesting to think about that at the time it wasn't really a big box office success, but has really become a cult classic at this time period. You know, quotes like, say hello to my little friend and all of those things. And then he did Casualties of War. He also did Carlito's Way and he did Mission Impossible, among many other films that he did. One of the other fascinating things about him is he discovered the actor Robert De Niro, who's in this film. Um, he's kind of the guy that found him and made his career early on in like these very much B movies that he was doing. And then he came back for the untouchables. Oh, that's kind of cool. It's, you know, he had to go talk to Robert De Niro and because he'd kind of discovered him, he was like, you know what? Uh, thought about the role and said, I'll do it, but it's going to be really expensive. And it was really expensive, but you know, (laughs) he, he, he does a great job in the film. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit, maybe it's obvious, but the about where this movie lands in Kevin Costner's career. I mean, Kevin Costner is household name at this point. Almost everyone knows who Kevin Costner is, and most people have seen him in movies, even if you're a loser like me who hasn't seen quite as many movies as a lot of people. And this was his 12th feature film, and it was the one that launched him into stardom it wasn't quite his breakout role his breakout role was two years prior to this with Silverado which was directed by Lawrence Kasdan and again they were friends and so Lawrence Kasdan had wanted to find a film for him and then this movie happened and then everything kind of explodes after that Uh, just the year after this you have Bull Durham and then Field of Dreams in 1989, and then Dances with Wolves in 1990, for which he makes his directorial debut. And then I don't need to run down the the rest of the list of Kevin Costner films, but continued to work steadily since Since then. Until Zack Snyder's Justice League, his latest film, so he just keeps going. Mm Mm-hmm. Who else did you did you pull? The other person that I pulled is the composer for this piece. And normally Zach is the person that's talking about the composer and the music and all those things. But today uh, I decided to bring in and talk about Ennio Morricone, the composer for this film. And Ennio Morricone is one of the most foundational composers in the history of Hollywood. The history of movies, I should say. Mm. He, it's like uh, Bernard Herrmann. 
and Ennio Morricone and John Williams. And those are three of the biggest names in, in the history of like movie composing. And he does this film. And this is one of the, one of the early, one of the first Hollywood films that he did. He, before this, he did, I don't know. He has something like 80 credits before this film, but they're Italian films. And there's a trio of Italian films that he's particularly well known for. They are the Fistful of Dollars trilogy, the films Fistful of Dollars, A Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And he, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was very popular in the U.S. and that whole trilogy was. It kind of launched the career of Clint Eastwood, but it also dramatically changed the way that music was used in the cinema, in particular with westerns. If you... Like, Western, Westerns and their music is marked before Morricone and after Morricone, these films. And he approached the musical style in a very different way. I don't know if the music stood out to you too much on this viewing, Zach, or if you noticed some of the things that he was doing, but he has a very different style than, than a lot of other composers use. Oh, yeah, I actually have quite a few thoughts about the score for this movie, but I think it's best to best to talk about them in the in the back half. Of yeah, the show. sounds great. And just to set our time period, the good, the bad and the ugly is 1966. Uh, correct. Yes. One of the so some of the things that are his style of films is he uses a lot of minor keys. He uses the human voice as an instrument. And before this, a lot of the human voice used in films for film scores was to do the words, like to communicate what the words of the song were. But he just uses it as texture. Like people are just like making noises in the background. Like um, uh, uh, he uses a lot of choral pieces, but even just like people saying, yeah, or and stuff like that and adding that into the songs. Um <laughs> He uses a lot of like whistling uh, and then everyday objects like in this film. I don't know if you know if you notice, but there's a part where there's a typewriter that's part of the music. And so the sound the typewriter is making is part of the one of the instruments that's in the film. Very cool. And then the use of the guitar was not really very common before Morricone and in film scores and his use of the guitar in the the Fistful of Dollars trilogy pan flute other kinds of instruments that people weren't used to he just brought in anything like whips he would use or bells and spurs just whatever and he would make that port part of the score yeah there's sort of this um particular for a lot of composers there's sort of this desire to just like always be stretching and always to be finding these new tones these these new timbres that you can use i mean this is sort of what drove a lot of what the Beatles were doing through the 60s as well. So it sounds like somewhat mirrored by Morricone. Yeah, doing basically the same thing on the film side, the film side in the 60s, but in Italy rather than in the U.S. Well, the Beatles, well, I guess the Beatles, no, yeah, they were mostly recording in the U.K. still. Even True, if, yeah. Yeah. And they were wreaking havoc over here in the States. Cool. And then the the last person that I wanted to talk about was Patricia Clarkson. And only because I was so surprised when I went to the IMDb page that this was her in the movie. Patricia Clarkson is, this was her feature film debut. And she has done 
a lot of work since then. Her 61st feature film is coming out later this year. And then there, it looks like, at least according to her wiki and IMDb, that there's another film that she's in in pre-production. And I've seen her in a lot of films and I couldn't necessarily quite place her. But what I do did recognize her from what I what I recognized her name from was I had watched Sharp Objects based on the the TV show based on the Gillian Flynn novel starring Amy Adams and she plays Amy Adams in that series and I thought I think she just gives such a standout performance in that show and I, I kind of wish I had known that it was her in this movie before before I had watched it, because that would have been, I would have definitely been looking to see if I could recognize her at all. And I think you had said that you, you had seen her in a couple of things that I hadn't, that you really liked her in, right? Yeah, in particular, she was in Good Night and Good Luck, which is a film that I love. Mm, Um, Yeah. And she plays the romantic interest of Robert Downey Jr. uh, in one of his early film roles. So... Oh, I want to watch that. That sounds yeah, it's, fun. Yeah, it's super fun. It's a very good film. And they have they have a lot of, like, their chemistry is really good together in that film as well. I, lo- I loved her performance in that one. And then she's done other things like she was in The Green Mile and things like that. Cool. Yahtzee. All right, let's t- let's do our. Oh, we have a new a new little segment or a new little talking point here. This was brought up to me by my good friend Evan Foss. I've mentioned him on the show several times, but he said that it would be really nice if we said explained why we picked the movie that we picked. Just because I think our lineup is so varied, and uh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I'm kind of bummed that we hadn't been doing that until this time, and so. As we said at the top of the show, we were a little under the gun here to come up with a movie and we kind of put it off until the until the last minute. And one of the things that we really try and do is we try and open our seasons and close our seasons with movies that are very popular. I think we want to try and have bookends for movies that people are going to be excited about. And this movie is one that we know is very highly regarded and had we had heard a lot about and the other thing that it did that we thought was kind of cool was we got to end last season on a Brian De Palma movie and then got to open this season on a Brian De Palma movie so even though there will be a few bonus episodes in the middle we thought it was nice to sort of have that continuity for the show yeah anytime we get to to see the texture of someone's work change over over different time periods uh, it's a really fun experience for for the show and the discussion that we're doing yep do you have anything else you wanted to add here i think that's it i also had seen the untouchables so so i remembered enjoying it and well the other thing to add just real quick is that the there's just not that many movies on Hulu. It's much yeah. more of a TV show service than it is a film service. So trying to find a show to watch off of Hulu, uh, especially something that covers like a more dynamic range of time periods rather than things from like the past 10 years, it's hard to do. And so The Untouchables stood out for that reason compared to the rest of the Hulu field. Yeah, and the we... 
for this season, unlike the previous seasons, I think there's only one movie in our lineup this season that I have seen. There's a few more that you've seen, but it's mostly movies that are new to me that I want to see. So Yeah, and there's there's a few that I have not seen as well. So that so that'll be fun. Alright, let's finish up our, our pre spoiler section with any advi- advice or insight for first time viewers. And I don't think I really have a ton else here. I think we sort of it's all of the history that we've gone over leading up to this point. But I don't think I have anything else specifically. Do you have anything? No, n- not really. Um, not anything else to add to this film. It's it's one that's, you know, pretty easy to pick up and watch. There's a bit of violence in this, so, you know, it might not be great for little kids. But honestly, compared to a lot of the stuff that comes out nowadays, it, it doesn't feel uh, gratuitous that much. It, it feels like it's, like it's a film that... Uh, barely comes in at rated R if you had changed some of the some of the words around like some of the F words. So, yeah, well, I I, I think it's stipulated in David Mamet's contract that his movies are going to be rated R. Makes so. sense. Uh, I'm joking. It's not actually stipulated, but he is a very big fan of the F word. Yeah, so. yeah. It's a it shows up a, a bit in this one, but but otherwise it's pretty pretty watchable. Um, I don't think it's going to be you know, a difficult watch for most people. Yeah. All right, let's take a break and we'll be back with spoilers. All right, welcome back to the back half of the show where we're going to spoil the whole movie. How, um, actually, maybe I should go first since I haven't seen this before. Go for it. Actually, why don't, why don't you go first? Because I have a lot of, like, sort of conflicting thoughts on yeah, this Yeah, I, honestly, I have a lot of conflicting thoughts on this one as well as I sat down and watched it. Uh, I remembered enjoying this movie when I had first watched it years and years ago, but as I watched it this time, it's not that I didn't enjoy it, but there were a lot of things that I was thinking over that I was that I wasn't sure if I liked or if I disliked and some things that I definitely didn't like and some things that I liked this time that I didn't enjoy the time before and it's really it's you had mentioned that it's a really weird movie and it just is like it's very much from the time period it's a movie that approaches the story in really strange ways so my yeah. reaction to it I don't know. It moved down a little bit for me in in how much I enjoyed the film. I re-ranked it and moved it down a few steps. But it was still really interesting to watch, one to watch for the podcast because there's so many things that I thought were were strange and interesting about this film to talk about. Yeah, I totally agree. I really enjoyed my watch of this and I found it extremely compelling. I found it really interesting. But at the same time, when Mare asked me how it was, it wasn't one that I was like, oh yeah, you should watch this movie. It's it's a hard one for me to recommend because I feel like there was, even though I enjoyed it, I felt like there was a lot of stuff that I that didn't necessarily work in this movie, even though I was enjoying it, if that makes sense. 
hundred percent makes sense. I I felt the same way. Yeah. For example, I feel like I I think David Mamet's script for this movie is extremely good. I think Brian De Palma's direction in general is extremely good. I am not sure that they are extremely good together. I think it sort of creates like a weird tonal disparity for the movie where it the places where it feels like Brian De Palma takes over feel like they're different parts of the movie than the parts where you really feel like, oh, this is a David Mamet script. There's a lot of disagreement between them uh, on set as well. So you're... you're oh, yeah, is that true? A, not that they didn't mm. get along. It's just that they had very different approaches to a lot of the different scenes. Um, and so when 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 De Palma talks about this, uh, he talks about how, in his words, uh, I'm not trying to put any judgment on David Mamet here, but he said that it, it felt like writers sometimes just don't get what movies are going to look like. And so they had to change things around dramatically mm-hmm. because it just wasn't going to look good, even though it would read well. Interesting. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And then the other thing... So I went, I did go back and listen to the soundtrack today because I was so, especially after I saw that you had put Maricone, is Morricone, that his name? yes. Morricone into the show notes because I was like, ooh, I better listen to this music again. And it really did solidify my feeling about this score, which is as standalone pieces of music, I think it's really excellent. I think there's a lot of really sweeping tunes and really like sweeping orchestration. And I think a lot of the like driving music, particularly for the credits and some of the stuff that feels like it has a little bit of an 80s tinge, I think all is just like really great and really fun and really easy to listen to. But I feel like it detracted from my enjoyment of the movie rather than enhancing it. And I felt that in two major places. So one of them was there were two action sequences, both neither of which we're going to talk about in depth for the scenes. But the first one is that first raid that they do in the warehouse or whatever. And then the second one, the raid, the, I guess it's also a raid at the bridge and both of them, any tension about what is going to happen during the raid is immediately undercut by this like triumphant soaring music that comes in. And it doesn't feel like the movie is direct. Like it feels like what's happening on screen you're supposed to be wondering what's going to happen. It doesn't. Fe- it felt like that. The music told me too early that these scenes were successes and that they were going to be triumphant. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying here, and it's it's weird too for for Morricone because that's not necessarily like it's a little bit out of his style, if that makes sense. The uh, a lot of like the sweeping kind of majestic triumphant music doesn't necessarily fit in with a lot of the things that he does before this. And mm-hmm. so I wonder how much of it is just the fit of him adapting to the Hollywood style versus the Italian style. Um, and just having 
sensibilities that were so different for what was uh, typical in Hollywood at the time period. And Morricone, it's really interesting, his history is he's so successful when he's doing these Italian films. When he jumps over to Hollywood, it's really hit or miss with the success of his scores. I will say that this score is one of, it's a very beloved score. It has, uh, the album has really high ratings, and it's one that people often list among their favorite scores from films, especially films from the 80s. But uh, I agree with you that there's a lot of tonal things that feel off. And it feels to me as well that a lot of the, the, the it doesn't feel like the soundtrack is cohesive. Like a lot of, the, no. the, 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 it feels like a lot of the songs just come from completely different films. Yeah, and especially when it's a it's a period piece, mm-hmm. like it takes place in 1930, and a period, I don't think it's very good for a period piece from the 1930s to also feel like a period piece from the 80s, yeah. which there were definitely moments where that happened, and... I don't know. I spent a little bit of time like warring with myself, wondering like, well, is that going to happen with period pieces from from now? Like, are we going to feel that way in 20 years? And I guess I don't know. I'm not not 100 percent certain. But yeah, it felt like some of the music was just a little too modern. It wasn't it wasn't right. Yeah, I, I do not disagree. Though there's a lot of individual songs that are just that are. just about all of the individual songs if you least listen to them in isolation they're great and i it really stood out to me when i sat down to watch it because i didn't remember the score that well but then i turned on the film and that score just punches you in the face from the very first note right as the title card is coming up and i was like oh yeah this one it's got a lot of those kinds of things and it just jumps around in so many different genres oh and that opening title card is unbelievable like i if if the whole movie was scored that way i would have i would not have have any complaints with it and i actually felt a little bit of that roller coaster cuz i felt the dichotomy when i was watching the movie and then today when i listened to the soundtrack i was like oh i don't know what my problem was this is this is great i love this and then when i was rewatching the scenes again right before we started recording i was like oh yeah <laughs> now i remember what my problem was here <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's. I think that's valid. And there's a lot of other things as well to me that I, I, I got the same sense, not just from the sound, but there were a lot of things that felt to me like it's very much an 80s movie, but also a period mm-hmm. piece. And there, there were so many things that, that stood out to me as just being strange and odd. And one of the other th- issues that I had with the film as I was watching it is just the the way that it deals with the police and kind of the politics of this film, which I feel are also all over the place. There's parts where it feels really progressive and f- parts where it feels so like conservative and retrogressive. And I don't know, it was, it's a, it was a strange one to watch because of that. Yeah, and I think if you look at the... Like, I don't think the political journey of David Mamet has always been completely linear either. So I think you might be seeing, like, some of that stuff working itself out on its way from the page to the screen. Well, it's also true of Brian De Palma, who has been... He has... 
just a really complicated history with with politics because he's always been very much an anti-authoritarian guy and just very suspicious of organizations and those kinds of things but there's also mm. a lot of issues that he has with with his treatment of women but it's interesting to hear him talk about it as well it's this is something that's very worth watching uh the film de palma for because um the and seeing the reaction of different kinds of women's groups and LGBTQ groups in response to his films. And there's not a consensus on on Brian De Palma. Some people see him as like uh, a feminist icon in some of the films that he's put together. Very subversive of gender roles and things like that. And some see him as very much a misogynist. And it just kind of goes over the whole over the whole spectrum and as he talks about it he feels like he he feels like he's been all over the spectrum as well from the reaction to his film yeah i don't have a as i've said i don't have a ton of experience with his filmography but i don't really view those things as mutually exclusive i think you can do both of those things i think we've seen both of those things done by Joss Whedon as well more recently and like I think (laughs) that dichotomy happens within people yeah I I agree uh was I gonna say one more thing no do you have anything else you want to say about initial reactions (laughs) here i guess our initial reactions went a little longer than normal yeah no it's just it, it was just a weird experience to w- watch this film and when you texted in the chat you said this was it's just such a weird film i felt the same way as i watched it and uh but it was it was it's fun for the podcast because there's so much to talk about that was strange yeah i'm also really glad i've seen this one like i would not i don't like i'm not don't wish i hadn't seen it i'm really glad to have have this one in my tool there's, belt. There's a lot from this film that has a big impact on films later on. And just a lot that, of this film that's kind of gotten recycled in other things. So it's it's useful for that reason as well. Oh, and the, the other thing that I did want to say here was the I had a some preconceived notions here about what type of movie I was going into that all ended up being wrong. So... I said before, I did not realize that we were, even though it's mostly a fictionalized story, I did not realize that we were dealing with a couple of real events and real characters, so I didn't realize that that was the case. I think I knew that we were in Prohibition times, but I thought that it was a mob story, And so I expected that the protagonists that we were going to be following were going to be mobsters rather than thinking it was going to be following cops. Yeah, yeah. Or the... Is he the... He's not the Justice... No, he is the Justice Department, Department. Treasury. Very strange role for the Treasury. Yeah. It's like... And so I actually thought... The Untouchables, <laughs> I was pretty surprised when the cops ended up being the Untouchables because in my mind, I assumed the mobsters were the Untouchables because they couldn't get to them. Like they couldn't get anything to stick and so they couldn't couldn't touch them. But that was not the case at all. So that was kind of a nice surprise. And I thought it worked. 
in the movie. I just, it wasn't what I was expecting. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about this one, because the history of films about the mafia is very much like completely dominated by films that are by things that are showing the side of the mafiosos. And so this Mm -hmm. one is like a classic, a classic from the genre that's looking from the perspective of law enforcement is is really distinct in that regard. Yeah, and maybe I should have said this in the in the front half, but The Godfather was 1972. So we're a decade and a half removed from the first Godfather movie. Yes, and a little bit out from Scarface and a little bit before Goodfellas. So for some perspective on uh, the... Yeah, Goodfellas was 92, yes. right? Okay, should we talk about scenes Yeah, let's here? do it. All right. The, so the first scene, it's funny because I think every scene we pulled are scenes that I really love, even though most of our reaction here was somewhat mixed or maybe mixed plus. But the first thing that I wanted to talk about is this opening sequence that starts with this shot of Al Capone in the barber's chair getting ready to get a shave. And it starts with this aerial shot that really feels like a director's shot in the same way that we remarked on some of the camera angles for Mission Impossible. And in a way that I feel like after this kind of disappears from the movie until maybe the the train station mm-hmm. sequence, maybe there's a few other moments, but I really felt like I felt De Palma in this opening. And then I didn't feel him again for for quite a while. And I really love how the dichotomy, how this scene sets up this persona of Al Capone and their newspaper interviewers who are there who are interviewing him and they're very charmed by him. And we're in this world where alcohol is outlawed, but everyone really just wants alcohol. And so if you want alcohol, then, you know, Al Capone's being this really nice, affable guy who is just providing alcohol for people, you know, sticking it to those evil lawmakers who won't let you just relax after a hard day of work. And that's, and, you know, he's saying that, like, sure, there's violence here in Chicago, but my people aren't violent. And then it immediately cuts to this scene where someone refuses to buy his alcohol, the bar that they're going to, that they're trying to hawk their hawk their their hooch at, and they say that they're not going to buy it. And then, you know, one of their cronies leaves a briefcase that has an explosive. And in a moment that was really pretty shocking to me, and I can only imagine how shocking it would have been at the time, they just killed a seven or eight-year-old girl in the explosion, which was not something that I was expecting to happen. And I did a little bit of Googling just to see, like, the history of killing kids in movies. Um, That's a disturbing little search history that you've got over there. uh, (laughs) Yep. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the NSA will go deep enough to listen to the podcast to figure out why I was searching for that. And it's not like 
there was not violence against kids in movies before this. In fact, there was quite a bit that I was able to find, but all of the instances that I found were almost exclusively in straight-up horror films rather than in sort of like an action thriller, legal thriller movie in the way this is. And so I'd be curious to hear from someone who was maybe an adult in the in the 80s how how that hit them but i did find an article that talked about how gruesome and how violent this movie was even though they really don't show a lot of violence in the movie like there was the i found i thought it was pretty tame from modern it has a lot of elision a lot of the the violence happens off screen because Mm -hmm. there's so many violent acts that happen in this film but i agree with you it's it's so much of it happens off screen especially this one but it still hit me really viscerally because you're like wow that that girl died and on top of it the music is just like this like happy little jaunty song until it blows up it like blows up and it doesn't prepare the music does not prepare you for that it's not like getting darker this, it's just instantaneously like boom there it goes this was one place where the music did not telegraph what was going to happen in yeah this movie. it happens a lot later on but but not this scene one of the other things i love about this scene is so this shot of al capone where it comes down and it shows him getting the shave the room is so opulent with like these hardwood floors and this very elegant mm-hmm. rug and he's got five people around him you know manicuring his hands and working on his toes and talking to him and giving the the shave and having hot towels ready for him and while well, all the reporters are there talking and then it just supposes over to the the bar that they're looking at and the bar is like it has thrift clothes hanging in the window that they're trying to sell and it's kind of dirty and and musty and the girl that comes in her clothes are like very much the clothes of uh, of someone that's more poor and the juxtaposition between this this is something that Brian De Palma talked about that he really wanted to have the see the difference between Al Capone's Chicago and how grandiose it was versus the rest of Chicago and i feel like this film executes that so perfect or this scene executes that so perfectly yeah, and I I love just, I know, it, I'm sure if someone tracked, like, how many times I pick the opening scene of the movie to talk about, but it's just, like, something that I am obsessed with, particularly because I am someone who prefers not to watch trailers and not to know what I'm going into when I watch something. I am, like, so obsessed with the way movies dole out information to you in their first 10 to 15 minutes just to make sure that they're like stewarding you correctly for the information that they need you to have right out the gate right out of the gate and i think this movie does it so well between showing the relationship between capone and the reporters and then you see that moment where he gets nicked with the razor and you see the fear on the barber's face but then you know Capone plays like he's being magnanimous like he's being very like he's a very forgiving non-violent guy and then the explosion and I think it just sets everything up so well it really does yeah 
It's and the colors are so strong too. That that blood is so red. It's just mm-hmm. visually there's so much going on with these other scenes, with these opening scenes. Yeah. That that's all I have to say about this this opening though. Did you have anything else I you wanted to say? I think that covers everything I I want to say too. All right. What's your next So scene? An- another stream it first is that i'm gonna bring up the baseball scene so i brought up the muse the the composer (laughs) and then now i'm bringing up the baseball so there's this uh incredible scene this is one of the ones that really stuck with me when i first saw and it's a scene with robert de niro who's there and he's having this dinner with his i don't know like his lieutenants you could say or the is uh the leaders of the mafia and there's like I don't know how many it is. It's probably 30 people gathered around a round table that are all having this very elegant, fancy dinner. They're all in tuxedos. And he's talking to all of them. And it's all these men that look so identical in all of their, like, matching tuxedos gathered around this this table. And it does this aerial shot as well where it shows the, the whole table with everyone sitting around. And I think it does a little bit of evoking, like, Camelot and King Arthur's court. And Al Capone sitting at the throne and, like, dispensing wisdom and all of this to to the group. In any case, he gets up and he says, you know, I can't remember the line exactly, but he says that what he really likes about America, one of the things he loves, is baseball. And he talks about why he loves baseball. And he says that, that baseball is, uh, you know, a man stands alone at the plate. This is the time for what? Individual achievement. And then he talks later, but in the field, what? part of a team and if the team doesn't feel then he comes around as he's talking to them and he's holding a baseball bat and then he comes over to this one member of his of the mafia who was involved in this raid who surrendered the the alcohol earlier and then he just beats the guy his head in and like explodes his brain all over the place and blood is just flying on all these people around him and all over the table and everybody just watches it and the juxtaposition of this violence and the elegance of the place where they're at is such a visceral scene. Yep, and this is, I mean, this is just a fantastic monologue, and not just because it's baseball, but this is, uh, this was one of those moments where baseball, a man stands alone at the plate. Like, when we hit that moment, it was one of those moments for me where I was like, oh, this is this is from this movie. I, I did not realize this. This is a monologue that I've, heard probably a dozen a dozen times and just did not know that it was from here yeah yeah it's 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 really well written very poetic and it's one of those things where uh we talked about the kind of the push and pull between the visual elements and the writing and how they don't necessarily always fit with each other in this film but this scene they really do complement each other in in my opinion yeah, no, I was going to say the exact same thing. Like, you get those shots of De Niro walking around the table, and they work so well. And then the violence is, especially when I rewatched it, like, you don't really see anything. You see him swing a bat. You see the bat, I believe, almost impact a head. But you don't, and then you see blood flying across the table, but you don't see any blood leave ahead until the end the last shot of the sequence where you just see a body face down on the table and then blood pooling out onto the white tablecloth it's really effective i think and really a really good way to punctuate 
such a poetic monologue with just some really disturbing visual imagery. I agree. I agree. And disturbing imagery that that's juxtaposed so strongly against the elegance of the monologue. They they work inter they they're interlocking in such a fascinating way, and they building on they build on each other by how opposed the the opposition in those two things. Yeah, the, there's really only three big De Niro scenes in this movie, three big Al Capone scenes, and it's the one we already talked about. This one, and then there's a confrontation with them in the hall, and it really like. It really makes me wish that we had seen that movie. <laughs> you know, I the all three of those scenes are really so good. Yeah, yeah, they're really good. He just he doesn't have that much. He 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 was paid more than anybody else on the on the entire show, and he's in so few scenes, but he's so iconic in all of them. The other thing though that's fascinating from the history of this film is that he he wasn't learning his lines. Oh, really? Yeah, so he'd come into work and he didn't know his lines. And so Brian De Palma was just like stopping the production and then just going and working and rehearsing with Robert De Niro on his lines so that he could so that he could get them. And he'd like go to his trailer to rehearse with him to work on his lines because he, he kept not getting them. And Robert De Niro is known in his earlier films for always coming very prepared and always knowing his lines. And so it was something that had kind of changed as he'd gotten more famous. So... That that's a fascinating little tidbit as well. He delivers this so well, and the writing is so good. But they had to really work to get that performance out of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that makes sense to me. I don't have anything else for this scene. Do you want to? Do you have anything else, or should we move uh, on? No, we can move on. All right, the next scene is yours. Oh, so. this is yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, it's, it's probably one. the most iconic uh, scene from the from the movie, and this is the train station scene, and. This so what happens is they have to go to the they have to go to the train station in order to intercept the accountant who is supposed to be getting on a a train. Uh, So they get there and they're looking around and they don't see him yet. And it has this this establishing shot establishing shot that goes and looks at the staircase of the of the central station where they're at. And you see this entire staircase, and then he, Kevin Costner and Brian Garcia, his partner, they, they separate out, and they're in different spots. And he's staking out the top of the staircase and looking around, trying to watch. And he's very nervous because these people keep coming in, acting suspicious, and then they're fine, and they go away. But what's so iconic about this scene is at the bottom of the staircase, there's this mom who's all by herself and has this carriage with the baby in it and she's trying to lug up these suitcases as well as the carriage and she's taking so long to do it and he keeps looking down at her and then looking up at everything else and he's like frustrated uh he's worried that she's gonna be there and what's that's gonna disrupt and eventually he goes down to help her pull up the baby carriage and i don't know when you were watching this film this scene like what your thoughts were when he goes down to help pull up the baby carriage (laughs) But the tension, for me, it was so high at this moment. Um, yeah, this this scene kind like here's the weird thing about. I mean, I love this scene. This scene, even when I rewatched it before the show, I loved every moment of it, and absolutely none of it 
works <laughs> on me. It like it feels like it's a scene for a completely different movie. It feels like it's a scene that needs to be in like a campy movie. I I totally get the, you. Yeah. And and I like unfortunately all I could think what like I don't know how many times you have been in a situation like this woman was in, but I have been not with a baby, but I have been in this situation multiple times with bags trying to get through Grand Central or trying to get up the subway where I cannot carry, like, because I was too poor at the time or didn't felt like I was too poor to be able to take a taxi. And this is in New York City with a lot more people around. And what you do is you have eyesight of the bags and you take one of them all the way up the stairs <laughs> and then you go back down and you bring the other one all the way up the stairs. And there was no one in this train terminal and there was even a landing partway through the stair, like partway up the stairs. And I like, I just cannot imagine that this is the way any human would choose to to do yeah, this. Yeah, I was how was how she did I've it. Had it, to, it took me out of the scene unfortunately I've had to move strollers up and down staircases before so I I totally get what you're saying because what you do it, it's hard when you've got a stroller is one difficulty because you're really uncomfortable leaving a kid at the bottom or at the top um, yeah. so that is yeah. one thing that maybe can justify it but yeah it's just it, you're frustrated you're like lady just just like you you can't do it this way this is not working this is so dangerous what's happening and i can only imagine that uh, kevin costner's character is thinking the same thing regardless i'll continue on with the scene he goes down to help her yeah, yeah he goes yeah, down sorry. to help her pull up the carriage uh, and he's holding the bags and helping her pull up the carriage and they get nearly to the top and that's right when the mafia guys show up with the the accountant and he looks over and he sees them uh, and they're going down and he realizes that he's going to have to have a shootout with the mafia you guys at this moment as he's pulling the carriage up and he's freezes at the top of the stairs and the lady's like can you can you let go of the car the carriage and talking to him but it just blurs out as he looks over and then he just pulls out his gun and he starts starts shooting uh the baby carriage slides and it starts sliding down the staircase and it's going in slow motion as this as the shootout is happening with the baby carriage going down the steps and, uh, you know, people getting shot. And there's these uh, a bunch of bullets nearly hit the baby carriage. And there's these sailors that get jump up and get hit. And they have this entire gun battle. And you're watching the baby carriage go down. Brian Garcia runs across the station, slides and gets the baby carriage. But he's on the ground holding the gun up. The, the accountant gets taken hostage. By one of the mafia guys, he puts the gun up to him and says, you know, I'm leaving out of here. Brian Garcia, who's just the best shot ever, um, has his shot lined up. Uh, Kevin Costner says, do you have him? Take the shot. Hits him. They capture the they capture the accountant. The baby's perfectly fine. And it is it is an iconic scene. And just stands out in my memory so much. Like, I think that anybody that watches this, this is the scene that they remember. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. And it's crystal clear. And it's so ridiculous. <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it's amazing. I was, so, the, there definitely was the moment when he hit the top of the staircase and he had to pull his gun out where 
I I was like, really, you could not pull that baby carriage one more step up before you started shooting. But I was like, okay, I've never been in a shootout. And when you're in a shootout, split seconds make all the difference. So I'm like, I'm totally able to explain this one away. But then what I was not able to explain away, and maybe you'll be able to do this for me because you have more experience with kids than I do. But I have never met a baby in my life that would not be screaming their head off if there was a gunfight going around, <laughs> going on all around them. I was like, does this baby not care about sounds? Like, what, what is going on here? Not to mention, you're hurtling down the stairs. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to tell you about that one. It's a, I agree. Maybe, uh, maybe the baby's hard of hearing and so didn't hear all the bullets going off. And if the, if this were in a, a campy movie, if this were in a movie where I was not supposed to be taking the rest of the movie seriously, I would be loving every single moment of this. Or I, I already was loving it, but I would be having no issues with any of it. But it, that's just why it felt so out of place to me. Yeah, totally understandable. The What's interesting about this is the scene, Brian De Palma got the idea of this from a movie called Battleship Potemkin, which is uh, quite a bit older. And it, it's a similar mm-hmm. thing, but th- the event that's happening is, is much worse. It is like an invading army that's going in and murdering everybody in the entire town. Uh, and there's a baby carriage that's rolling down the steps because the mom got killed and the baby carriage is rolling down as the soldiers are marching oh. forward and just shooting and murdering everybody. And it, the comparison between uh, – I had not seen that scene the first time that I watched it, but I had when I went back and watched it this time. And the comparison between those, the pathos in the Battleship Potemkin scene is so strong and so evocative, and it doesn't have any of the campy feel for a lot of the reasons that you're kind of outlining. It's it's a silent mm. film, so you, you're not hearing anything anyway, and it's just so traumatic what you're seeing, and it's so easy to to feel the pathos as this baby carriage goes, and it goes in slow motion as they're marching through this town. And, you know, Brian De Palma was going for some of that. And it's there's so many iconic shots. And visually, it's so interesting. But I agree that there's some things that just don't make a ton of sense in in the story. And it's also crystal clear. Like, this is a scene that could very easily get muddled and be difficult to track what's going on. But you never have that issue in this scene. So... uh, Technically, like, it's extremely well done. Yeah, so so one of the things that's fascinating about this one is that it was not written this way at all. That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, there was supposed to be a shootout on, a tr- on the train, uh, and they were supposed to have, like, oh. it was... Um, basically, they're, they're intending to have, like, this big action sequence on the train, sort of like what happens in Mission Impossible years later. And they ran out of money. Uh, it would have cost oh. them like $300,000 oh, and they just only had like 50 left or something. And so they didn't have enough money to get the trains. They couldn't afford to, to shoot on the trains. And so they didn't know what to do. Um, and Brian De Palma was like, don't worry, I've got it. We'll just go down here into this location. We don't even need any money and just give me a baby carriage and like some guys in some sailor outfits and some guns and uh, a big clock. And then 
we'll figure this all out. And he just basically mapped it out like the day they were doing it and figured all of this stuff out of how it was going to be shot. Yeah, I mean, that's probably why it feels so tonally different from the movie. It does not feel like anything David Mamet would have written for this. Yeah, it it, it makes sense. And when you hear that story, it's the filmmaking aspect of it and what leads to this kind of cinematic experience just clarifies so much. You see the business aspects and the technical aspects and the so many people involved that leads to this kind of scene being made. But then you also hit that moment where he slides under the baby carriage and throws the gun to Kevin Costner. And I was like, oh, I understand why people want bananas for this movie. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It was cool. Do you do you understand? Because even on my rewatch, I was not able to justify or figure out like what was such a big deal that like he had to play the floor is like below the bottom step is lava. And if I let the baby carriage touch the bottom floor, the whole thing explodes. Like why do, do you have a justification for why he had to catch the baby? Uh, carriage no, I'm not, and I'm not hold sure. It there? Uh, there is somebody at the bottom of the steps that's like in front of where the baby carriage is at. So maybe the worry is that it's going to crash into him, but I don't think there's a lot of, I don't think it's intended to be that you look at it that deeply on that part yeah yeah the rule of cool yeah exactly yeah that, that's all i have for this scene do you want to add anything that's all else? i've got for that one all right let's talk about the last scene here which is the so this is the rooftop scene at the end that i wanted to talk about this is after he finds he's told them that someone in the courtroom has a gun and so they need to get him out of there and they get him out and he turns out his pockets and oh my gosh he's got a gun but he's also got a legal permit but then he realizes uh, Kevin Costner realizes that this is the guy who killed his his BFF Sean Connery and because the address is written on the on the match the matchbox mm -hmm. a a device that I was not entirely enamored with but (laughs) it's okay well additionally Um, what i found hilarious is the permit that he's carrying is just a handwritten note from the mayor it's this it has like that's it it's just the mayor wrote a handwritten note and said this guy can carry a gun i kind of liked that though that that seemed like kind of true to uh, the time period yeah or even if it wasn't like completely accurate it (laughs) felt accurate which uh, yeah, did did not take me out of it. And so then he they run up to the run up to the roof and they have an action sequence where they're sort of chasing each other and one that felt a lot more germane to the movie than the the train the the train station sequence. And there were a couple of reasons I wanted to talk about this sequence. One of which is because the bad guy ends up trying to climb down a rope <laughs> to escape. And then for reasons that I am still unclear of, he, I I think it might've been, I think we were maybe supposed to understand that he gets all the way down the rope and then it's not long enough. So he can't get to the ground from it. And so he comes back up. Was that your understanding of what happened? I think here? so. And also Kevin Costner sees him and has his gun on him. So I think part of it is he's like, yeah. oh, well, I guess I guess I'm caught. But yeah, that, Got when it. he's 
and it takes a while for him to climb back up and you're just sitting there watching this guy awkwardly try to climb back up this rope it's a very strange it's a very strange scene that moment it is strange but you know what we do have in a roundabout way is we have a little stream at crossover here which is we have now watched two movies from 1987 and in both of those movies we have the protagonist talking uh well i guess the situations are flipped but someone is climbing up a rope and having a conversation while that's amazing i didn't even think about that connection yeah yeah that was all i could think about during this scene but um so that was kind of the funny reason i wanted to talk about this but then and i think this is where this is where the movie gets a little muddled or this is where the muddling of the movie really becomes extremely clear because kevin costner opts not to kill him and he's going to arrest him because he's the good guy and that's what good guys do and that's what good cops do and then he insults his uh, insults sean connery and says that when he killed him he screamed like a pig and kevin costner just absolutely loses it and shoves him off the roof an action for which there will be no repercussions and this is the point where it's like, well, A, this wouldn't happen in a movie today, I don't think, because it's just too unclear what we're trying to say about the protagonist here, what we're trying to say about Kevin Costner's character. And I think the point here is, is like, it's supposed to be how much Sean Connery's death affected him, and it's supposed to be his breaking point but i'm not sure what moral lesson we are what where we're supposed to come down morally on kevin costner yeah i agree and well and when he throws him off it's not like he it's not like a quick moment where he just like pushes him off he runs him like 30 feet across the rooftop and then chucks him off Mm -hmm. onto a car uh, and stands there and watches as he goes and like is standing silhouetted in the on top of the roof as he watches as he watches people gather around the body that's crashed into the into the car yeah and there is a falling effect that is not very good but the effect of him landing in the car i thought was extremely good and yeah very that, cool. that part was great and the the yeah the cgi of him like actually falling not good at all but what you know it's yeah it's whatever you know it's the time period you, you can't hold that really against it yeah yeah no i don't i just think it, it it's is funny. funny it's if you're gonna watch movies like from this time period it's something you have to you got to be all to yeah, go for with. sure. Um, I do think I had some thoughts as I watched it this time that my thoughts matured on it a little bit. Some of it I think is maybe just me bringing my own thoughts to it, but some of it I think is intentional from from both David Mamet and Brian De Palma, but in different ways. There's this scene where Kevin Costner is talking to the judge. And he says this quote, he says, I have forsworn myself, I've broken every law I've sworn to uphold, I've become what I behold, and I'm content that I've done right. This moment where he says, like, I've broken every law, and I've become 
the exact thing that I was trying to fight in order to defeat defeat it. And I think that's part of what this moment on the rooftop is trying to say. Like, when he meets Malone earlier in the film, he tells him that the way you defeat Al Capone is you have to do the Chicago way. If they bring a knife to the a knife to the fight, you bring a gun. If they put one of your guys in the hospital, you put theirs in the morgue. This is the Chicago way, he says. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he kind of teaches him that he can't use, like, he's going to have to become like the people that he's fighting. I think another part of this is just the frustration with the system overall um, and and Brian De Palma's just general distrust of organizations and the police. It feels like a lot of this film is saying like the corruption in the police force and even this character that's supposed to be the the shining knight the the untouchable at this moment he's touched like he has become just like all these things that he was fighting and basically is not different and i think that i think that brian de palma is trying to in some ways say that about these organizations and we saw that as well in Mission Impossible, where he he has to become exactly like the things he's fighting against in the organization in order to take down the organization. So, and I think that's part of Brian De Palma's feelings in working in the studio system in films and trying to be like a creative auteur that was working against the system, but working within it at the same time. So I think those are all themes that are intertwined. At the same time, I agree. I don't think it works entirely politically. I think it kind of falls apart morally and ethically and politically at this point. Yeah, and you see, I think you see De Palma's distrust of the system probably in the choice of this story. And there is a line that highlights it in the middle of the movie when the accountant brings Al Capone's tax issues to Kevin Costner and Kevin Costner just says kind of disbelieving like (laughs) you know we know he's murdered a million people and we're gonna get him on tax evasion and just like the how unbelievable it is that those are the things that are maybe the only charges that we're able to make stick and we've kind of seen that in modern times where we know and we've seen that there's like a plethora of evidence and maybe it's would only stand up as necessarily circumstantial against uh, our former president Donald J. Trump but the stuff that seems to make it the furthest in court and the stuff that seems to stick the hardest is all of the stuff that has to do with his taxes and whether or not he paid taxes and it's always such a strange feeling when those things like rocket up to the top of the news because it's like well yeah it would be cool if we got him on this but like he's also done a lot of really other horrible stuff that we're just like not talking about and I couldn't help but feel like that line in the movie felt very applicable oh yeah I I agree and I thought the exact same thing you know it's Al Capone in this film is very much a Donald Trump kind of figure in fact there's this weird picture of Donald Trump like holding a baseball bat in the White House and he's holding it like the same way that Al Capone was. Not only that, but he's making the same face, almost as if he was like trying to channel Al Capone in that baseball scene. And I, honestly, I I assume 
that Donald Trump has seen this film and like that he very much identifies with the Al Capone figure in it. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was directly evoking that scene. But, you know, there's hundreds of thousands, you know, around a million people that have died directly as a result of Donald Trump's actions. Uh, and yet there's no consequences to be had. And the only things that, that get any kind of traction are tax issues or financial issues. And it just is, it's baffling uh, and it's so frustrating. And you understand where Kessner, Kevin Costner is feeling in that moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that, those were the two big things that I wanted to cover for this rooftop scene. Do you have anything else or should we move towards cleanup? Let's move on to cleanup. Okay, we were we actually partly because we went on so much for our initial reaction. I was able to get almost everything I have for cleanup here. Um, but the only thing that I did want to mention was in that second, um, and I I'm curious how you felt about this. But in that second, um, the raid at the bridge, where they need to get the information out of the one of his cronies so that they can figure out how to crack the the ledger and understand what it means i i i think we've talked about this i think we have sort of a similar experience here but there's been a lot of the way that torture has been used in films has been a way that really shows it really has created this public idea that physical torture will cause people to crack and cause people to give information. And so much so that when all of the information was coming out and one of the strong liberal positions maybe 10 years ago, I think, was that like all of the science really shows us that torture really does not work and that it's not something we should be doing. And Maybe it was longer than 10 years ago. I don't know that it's not something we should be doing, not because both because of like the moral argument of it, but also because it just flat out doesn't work. That was something that was really difficult for me to get my brain around because it was something that I had been so inoculated into from media and from everything that I had watched that it it took a lot of like retraining for me to believe that and understand that the way the movies depict it is it's entirely propaganda. The, the torture doesn't work. It's, it's not effective. It's essentially like flipping the dice. The, the answers that you're going to get, the people will just say whatever it is and it's not going to be accurate. It's, you're more likely to get inaccurate information as soon as you, as soon as you start torturing. And so, yeah, I had those same thoughts as this scene was going and I found it fascinating that, (laughs) that Elliot's like, we're not going to torture this guy. And then Sean Connery goes and grabs the dead body and like threatens him and then uh, shoots the dead body. Um, Yeah. And I like, I think from modern standards, this is still like emotional torture. And I don't think it would be likely to get the result that they desire, but I was kind of pleasantly surprised for the time period and thought it was a nice, device that they found for shooting the dead body so i i kind of liked this even though i i agree it's a i i was like for the time period i think there's some interesting stuff that they're doing but it doesn't hold up nowadays but it's still an interesting choice for when they made it yeah i i I thought it was was clever yeah so 
So my cleanup thing, this is, there's this other scene, one of my other favorite scenes that we didn't get to talk about, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but there's a scene where this guy's sneaking up behind Sean Connery, and then he turns around and he's like, you know, you brought a knife to a gunfight, and then chases him out with the gun, and then he steps out in the hall, 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 or into the alleyway and gets just blasted. So <laughs> on the day that he, they're shooting this, <clears throat> um, it, Brian De Palma finds out that Sean Connery had never been shot before, as in... He'd done all these action movies, but as James Bond, he'd never taken a bullet. So this was Sean Connery's first experience being shot, and they had to put like the blanks on him, um, or not the blanks, the the like packets oh, and all this, and all this stuff. And in this scene, he doesn't just get shot; he gets shot like thirty times, over and over and over again. And apparently, it's really painful to get shot. Uh, so Brian De Palma, he gets him in there and he's like, you've been all through this before, you know, it's going to hurt a bit. And he's like, no, I've never been shot before. He's like, oh, well, you know, buckle up. And so he gets hit and he gets hit, you know, all those times and they have this shot. And Sean Connery just, he gets up afterwards, he glares at Brian De Palma, just absolute death, looks around, doesn't say a single thing. And he walks off the set back to his trailer and they don't see him the rest of the day after they filmed that scene the first time. Did they use that take? Do you know? They did not because then he came back the next day and they reshot it like nine more times. uh, And he didn't complain about it a single time afterwards after that first time. But so they, they had to shoot it a bunch of times afterwards. But so, so Sean Connery got shot. Like, you know, I don't know, like 250 times altogether in this film after having never (laughs) taken a bullet before this one. That's a high yeah, bullet count. So, <laughs> it was just a great story, again, from the De Palma docu- documentary. It's such a wonderful one about Sean Connery. Uh, oh, I re- remembered I have one other thing for cleanup. And I, so I'm not sure if it's something that, like, happens in every movie. I, I mean, I know it's something that happens in every movie. But it was something that struck me as strange this time. But I don't know if for some reason I was hyper aware of it or if it was particularly pronounced in this movie, which is I thought a lot of the sound effects for various things that happened throughout the movie. So particularly a lot of the punches were extremely loud and took me out of the movie. But there was also one where I think it was when Sean Connery tapped or no, it was when... Kevin Costner tapped Sean Connery's badge and it just was like the loudest clink sound I have yeah. ever heard in my life. But th- this was something you noticed too. It well, the other one that's super loud reason. is when Sean Connery taps the gun that Kevin Costner has in his pocket and he like comes over and just, oh, maybe he just like gently it taps was, it yeah. and he's like, ding. And <laughs> it's, yeah, so <laughs> I, I noticed that as well. Okay, cool. I was wondering if I was like, just having a hyper awareness moment no, or something. That's great. So, so, so okay. the next thing here, um, cool. Sean Connery has a distinction in this film. This is uh, he won his first Oscars for this film for best supporting actor. That's right. We should yeah, have mentioned so, that. Uh, so congrats to him. He he'd been acting for a long time on that. He also won an award for best actor or worst actor for this film. I can't remember where he got it from. So he has a distinction of winning both best actor and worst actor for the same role in the same film. I mean, it makes sense. He is simultaneously great and horrible. Exactly. And the thing that they cited was, um, you know, he's playing an Irishman with a very strong Scottish accent. Um, He just doesn't even try to do an Irish accent. And 
you know, maybe you could suspend your disbelief a little bit. But then he acts alongside this other Irish cop who has a strong Irish accent. And he's just got his Scottish accent and they're just mixing it up. And it's the accent is so bad in this film. It's just, I don't know. He doesn't eat. He, he makes no effort. It's similar to Hunt for the Red October where he plays a Russian sub commander and just does a Scottish accent the whole time in that one as well. But um, yeah, I love it. But his performance is really good, except for that, so... I know, I know, that's what I mean. So, I don't know, it's it's a funny one. And then, just one other thing, one of the things that I found fascinating is Elliot Ness, the actual person. One of the things that happened, and the reason why they got the name The Untouchables, is there was this courier for Al Capone, someone working for him, and they came in when he first came in, and they offered to just put a two, uh, two $1,000 bills on his desk every monday if he would turn turn his head the other way and they did this for like two months every day he'd come in and there'd be two one thousand dollar bills and he'd just throw them in the garbage or rip them up until well that's uh, a felony yeah so so over and over again until they until you know they gave up on it because they realized they weren't gonna turn him but i don't know it's a fascinating thing elliot ness is a, a really fascinating character from especially police history and this film does a lot of like mythologizing of the police and this character in ways that i think are in many ways harmful and i don't know it's interesting the elliot ness character is interesting the the there's some things that obviously there's this like moral code not to do these things and then there's other things that they did that are just completely horrific and complete violations of civil rights and things that just should never be done and it was just a mixture of all of those things it does that while also painting the police force as a 100 percent corrupt unit which yeah is so so interesting so i was meaning the myth overall of elliot ness but yeah this film in particular i i think actually has a very much of a message that the police as as a whole are incredibly corrupt and even oh i see what you mean yeah yeah, yeah. even elliot ness's character is part of that corruption uh, i i honestly like i think this film often gets viewed by people as like a a pro cop kind of film but i don't think that's at, I don't know. There's some parts of that this film that are trying to do that, but I think there's a lot of it that's that's very much against the organization of law enforcement and the way that it's run. Yeah, I mean, I think the score views that as a pro cop film. Yeah. So I think that's part of part of where those mixed messages are coming from. Yeah, I mean, I have a suspicion that there was just a lot of divide from the people on the film over how to view it, and so all of their ideas are all mushed into the same thing. I mean, it was also, like, a time that wasn't now. Like, a lot of the people may have had those feelings, but not known what they were or not been able to articulate them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and this is why I went through and read all those police newspapers, because it's, I don't know, it, it was a very kind of different time in the public perception of police forces. And this film really just is situated in the middle of those discussions that were happening. Yeah. For sure. Did you have anything else for cleanup? That's it. All right. So that will do it for The Untouchables. If you 
would like to touch our inbox, if you'd like to hit us up, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A, and you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us some longer form thoughts, shoot us an email at podcaststreamit. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what your experience is with this movie. We'd love to hear if you enjoyed it, if it you bumped on the same things that we bumped on. Uh, maybe they didn't bother you at all, or maybe you bumped on some different things than we did. We'd, we'd love to hear from you and know what your experience was and as always if you have any feedback for us for how we can make the show better we would love to hear that and hey if you just love the show and want us to feel good we uh we take those too and as always i want to give a shout out to david stewart aka esteriel who has been our beta listener for all three seasons and also has been really helping us out with editing and doing a lot of work to make us sound smarter and more articulate than we actually are so we really appreciate that and the the show really appreciates it and the <laughs> if you're listening to the show you also really appreciate it even though uh, hopefully you don't hear his work. yeah for, for just an example um i've uh, I've been, I had a cold a couple of weeks ago, and I still have this lingering cough. And if you didn't hear coughing, that's because David cut it all out. So, yeah. In fact, every moment where you don't hear coughing, it's because David. It's cut true. It out. Yeah. Right now. Yep. David. Exactly. Cut it. Yeah. Masterful work. Okay. Do you, yeah. Do you have a closing? Question? I do. So this movie takes place during Prohibition, and there's this great line at the end where Kevin Costner. You know, he, uh, they tell him prohibition, they're going to repeal it. They say, what are you going to do? And he says, get a drink. Uh, so I just had this thought, what would you do during prohibition? I know for me, I'm, I'm not what? much of a drinker anyway, so I, it wouldn't have that much of a dramatic impact on me as far as drinking. But if, if it was prohibition, what are you doing? Like, how, how much are you following the law? Are you getting a drink? What's going on here? I think it probably depends when I am in my life, I think I'm probably following the law. I'm, I'm a square. And um, yeah, so I, I, I think I wouldn't risk it. Yeah, whereas I'm, I'm the, I'm probably more likely to like break that kind of law. But I also just don't drink. So I wouldn't have any reason to, to break that one in particular. So I don't know, I found that one fascinating. And just the thought of the the way society would be so much different uh, with alcohol being illegal that that's a very hard thing for me to wrap my head around like not being able to go get a drink but in any case yeah um our questions are at least tangentially related uh this time and in fact i'm going to have to answer my question to you a little bit differently similar to how you had to answer your own question a little differently um as you said, this movie takes place during Prohibition, and you are not a drinker. You have, I, I don't believe you've ever had alcohol, is that correct? Never never on purpose, uh, a couple of times by accident. Um, so just, you know, weird, complicated situations. But uh, yeah, never deliberately drink anything. So my question for you is, has there ever been a time where someone has had a description of an alcoholic drink or some like a description of it or you've seen someone like drinking something that looks really good that you're like 
oh, I actually, I kind of wish I knew what that tasted like. Oh, so the the answer is yes, all the time, constantly, actually. Because, so for folks that don't know, I don't drink because I belong to a religious group where where we don't drink. Um, and, you know, it, my feelings on religion and those kinds of things are really complicated and difficult. But I am the kind of person that just thinks if you're going to make a commitment to something and there's like rules that you're committing to, then you should follow those rules that you're committing to or you should not be be part of that. So if I'm if I'm going to like go to church, then I need to not drink. At the same time, I don't view anyone that does drink as being like morally problematic in any kind of way unless they're drinking to excess. So I just want to clarify that one. It's just like, you know, my my personal commitment to this this thing. But at the same time, I'm always like, hmm, I would like to know what these things taste like because there's a lot of things that I'm just interested in. But at the same time, I don't really have any desire to drink alcohol itself. Like I have, I would love to taste some of the things, but I don't actually want to ever drink alcohol or, or get drunk in any way. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally, it totally does make sense, especially because I'm the type of person like that I can, there have only been one or two, two times in my life where I've actually been inebriated, but I do really enjoy alcohol. I have a drink most nights or a lot of nights, and I it's extremely rare for me to ever have more than one drink. So yeah, I, I totally get it. Is there, if there was like, if there was a genie who was able to say like, I can give you the knowledge of what one one spirit or one drink, wine, beer, vodka, whatever, I can give you the knowledge of what it tastes like without you having to have a drink, which one would you pick? I don't know. There's so many different ones. Um, I've always kind of, again, I don't drink, so I have no thoughts on this, uh, or I have no thoughts on, like, what kinds of drinks are good and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of different... um, you know, just the idea of wine and wine tasting and like kind of those, like these kinds of elegant drinks have always kind of interested me. But I think that if I were someone who drank, probably the drink that I like the most, the kind of thing that fits my style uh, from what I have talked to other people would be something like a rum and coke. Uh, and so when it comes mm-hmm. down to it, like that's that's actually what I'd like to try just because, you know, to see if that actually does fit my kind of style. So I don't know. Yeah, that sounds about right to me, yep. knowing you. So I'll twist my answer a little bit here and sort of just tell kind of a funny story of... So I did not drink until I turned 21, in keeping with your question. Uh, I was a square, so... And it's not like I had not had alcohol. Um, my parents were fine to let me and my sister try alcohol when we were at home, but it was not something that we were particularly interested in. And we were raised Jewish, and it's part of the Jewish faith to, particularly during seders, you know, you're supposed to drink four glasses of wine. So that was something that was pretty normal. So it's not like I didn't know what it tasted like, but I also didn't really like it. But so when I turned 21, probably like around like when I turned 20 was when I started to be like, you know, I kind of wish like I 
could drink and I knew what it was like. But at that point, I had waited so long that I figured I may as well wait longer. And so when I turned 21, we went to the liquor store and we got a bunch of stuff. And I was so excited to try it and sort of see, like, I had done some research and figured out, like, what drinks we were going to try and make and figure out what I was going to get. And, but (laughs) the thing that most surprised me was we got a bottle of sweet vermouth. And uh, I didn't know what sweet vermouth was at the time, but I assumed it was going to be really delicious because it has the (laughs) word sweet in it. And uh, so we got home and I poured a little shot of sweet vermouth and it is it is sweeter than dry vermouth, that's for sure, but it is not something that you really would like to sip on your own on its own. And that was a lesson that I learned immediately. That's great. Yeah, I love it. And uh so that's my fun story of when I learned what some alcohol tasted like. Delightful. Okay, so that will do it for this week. Oh, and we have to say what movie we're watching next week. So next week we are going to watch Crush, yes. right? Yes, Crush. Crush is a new movie. It's a Hulu original. So we're really ex- one of the exciting things about Hulu is to be able to do some of their original content. And this one just came out. So we were pretty stoked to do a contemporary movie from 2022. Uh, Matt has now seen it, but he had not seen it at the time when we chose yes. this movie. So stick around next week and find out what we thought of that yeah i'm really excited to do something that's that's brand new um and have lots of thoughts about this film already cool so we will talk to you next week bye